This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Well, I was in middle school in the 90s, and I remember this fad that kind of took off. It started in the Christian subculture, but as does not always happen, it actually spread, and uh, the wider world took note. It was the fad of those little bracelets that had WWJD on them. Do you remember that? What would Jesus do? And it really was a thing, so much so that, like I said, the culture kind of noticed, and it became a thing in the culture, too, for a while. And then, as is the case, the fad faded, and now we look at that and we kind of despise it, or at least mock or scoff or, you know, uh, smirk to ourselves. I guess that's the nature of fads. Happened with bell-bottoms, too, although if you asked me, I would still wear them, but nobody ever asks my opinion on fashion. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, But the WWJD, what would Jesus do? However you think about that now, if you do kind of laugh at, at the fad that happen, the phenomenon, let's come back to the reality that that's a really great question. What would Jesus do? You know, you could describe the Christian life one, one way among many, but a simple way you could describe the Christian life is once you become a Christian, from that point forward, your whole goal is to become more and more like Jesus. And you do that by saying, well, what would Jesus do? What would he say? How would he react? How would he respond? How would he initiate in this situation? So we're asking, what would Jesus do? Or or more precisely, what is Jesus doing? Because Jesus is still alive. He's, He's active, mostly in and through us, his church. What would Jesus do? What is Jesus doing? And on Sanctity of Life Sunday, where we do... Uh, shed a spotlight on the issue of abortion and seek to promote the culture of life, we're going to ask the question, okay, what does Jesus do when he encounters the issue of abortion? What does Jesus do when he encounters a person who supports abortion? What does Jesus do when he encounters someone who's been personally impacted by abortion? Because they had one, or they encouraged someone to have one, or they're currently right now thinking of having one or encouraging someone to have one. What does Jesus do then? I think it's safe to say from the Scriptures, and as we look at the life of Jesus, that in line with our theme this whole month in this sermon series, in that, in all of those scenarios, Jesus makes all things new. And in those scenarios, He would come with the desire to renew hearts and to renew minds, to change minds, and to renew entire lives. He comes and he says, I have good news for you. He brings forgiveness and the strength to walk a new path. Jesus ministers hope for the future no matter what your past has been. This is what Jesus does. Now, the Bible doesn't speak to the reality of abortion in 21st century America because it was written, the Bible was written a long time ago. And the gospel passage we're going to study today isn't directly about abortion or issues of life. But what we're going to do is we're going to read these two stories from Matthew, and we're going to ask the question, what does this reveal about Jesus? How does Jesus in these stories bring good news to the people here? And then we're going to do the work of translating that to then this issue in our day of abortion and how do we promote the culture of life. As we do, as we look to this this gospel passage and these stories We'll see off the top that Jesus sees the person, he speaks truth, and he gives hope. 
That's what Jesus does. Speaks, sorry, sees the person, speaks truth, and gives hope. So let's take a look at Matthew 9. So in verse 2, the paralytic has been brought to him. He recognizes faith in the paralytic and his friends. And seeing their faith, he says this, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. He's come to be physically healed, and Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. This tells us something really important about Jesus. He sees the person, not just the surface issue. He looks beneath the surface. He sees what the person's truest need is, and he ministers to that. Along with that, he ministers to the whole person. So he's not just going to heal this man's broken body, which he will do, but he's going to first minister to his heart and to his soul, which Jesus recognizes more than anything. This man needs to hear a word of hope that his sins are forgiven. So he ministers to the whole person, heart and mind, the inner man and the outer man. We also see in this story that Jesus speaks truth to the minds of the Pharisees who do not know the truth. Part of Jesus bringing good news means that he exposes what is false. He even calls it evil. Look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, they were, they were grumbling. How can he say he forgives sins? Knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? He's challenging their wrong assumption. He's going to correct it, and he goes on to say, I do have authority to forgive sins. He's correcting the wrong assumption. He speaks truth. As we move to the story with the tax collectors, look at verse 9. Jesus passed on. He sees a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth. It means he's a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. Again, Jesus sees the person. He doesn't see or define Matthew by his sin. He sees the person underneath and through the sin. Uh, lately, my son, Simon, who's a five-year-old, he's been really into the goods and the bads. So we read a story. He's identifying who are the goods, who are the bads. And even as we're driving around and, and we're listening to the news, he's starting to kind of pay attention, and he'll ask me, what is the news saying? And then, and then if it's about somebody in particular, he'll always say, are they a good or are they a bad? And it's like, well, you know, Simon, it's, it's kind of tricky. Um, so he got to the point where I realized, okay, I, at bedtime, our prayers and Bible stories, I'm going to tell the story, this story of Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors. So I did, and I explained to him really clearly, these are the bads. And Jesus said he came for the bads. And you want to know what Simon said? Really? That is confusing. <laughs> we sometimes forget how radical the gospel is. So again, here Jesus along with seeing the person, what do we see him do? Verse 10, he is fellowshipping with these tax collectors, reclining at table in their house. And other tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining and eating with Jesus and his disciples. He was building friendships with the bads. He's gracious. And Jesus loves the wayward. He befriends them in order to bring them hope. Like in the psalm we, we just prayed a moment ago, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs who? Sinners in the way. So Jesus teaches his way to the wayward that they might become unwayward. He brings the love of God to those least likely to deserve it. This is what Jesus does. 
And then verses 11 to 13, the Pharisees, they're back again, arguing again. They're upset. They say he shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus, once again, speaks truth. He corrects their wrong beliefs and their wrong assumptions. The false belief about his mission, their false understanding of the heart of God and who God is coming after and who God welcomes and how he does it. They're wrong about all of these things, and Jesus does not passively stand by. He speaks to them and corrects them in the hope that they would turn, repent, and actually follow him too. And we do know that at least a few Pharisees did. Now, it's interesting he speaks truth to the Pharisees. What our story doesn't explicitly tell us, but what we can absolutely with certainty assume is that he speaks truth to the tax collectors and the other sinners as well, likely the prostitutes, who are also the lowest rung of the social stratum. He's hanging out with them, but he's not condoning their former lives. He's not giving them a pass on their sin. He's befriending them in order to call them out of it. He's speaking truth to them as well, saying there's a new way to live, and I will help you walk in it. So again, we see, to recap, Jesus sees the person more than the issue. He sees the person. He speaks truth, and he gives hope. So as we turn then to the question of abortion in our day and what does it mean to promote the culture of life, we're going to seek to do the exact same thing. And again, to be more precise, actually Jesus is doing this and he wants to do it through you and me. See the person. Speak truth. Give hope. Now as we we continue this morning, I want us to keep in mind three categories of people. First are those who support abortion. The second are those who currently are thinking of having an abortion or they're the boyfriend or husband or close friend or family of a pregnant woman and altogether they're they're contemplating abortion as a solution. So that's the second category. And then the third category would be those who are affected by abortion. It's something that's a part of their past. Again, either a woman who's had one or a woman or a man who's encouraged someone else to have one. Those are the three categories of people. And here's our situation. Um, I don't need to tell you that we're surrounded by coworkers, extended family, even people in our friendship circles, perhaps, who hold the opposing view, or at least are undecided on this issue. Many people in our culture are in one of those two camps. Not everybody, it's actually roughly split 50-50 in the country, but many are in those camps of either opposed to life, supporting abortion, or they're at least undecided. Um, In preparation for this sermon, I called up a friend who works in uh, the secular workplace, and I said, well, tell me what it's like for you, because I work at the church, so that's that's not my day-to-day weekly experience. What's it like for you? And he said, you know, the, the conversation doesn't come up a ton. It's a little touchy, very sensitive, so it's rare that it would come up. But then he relayed to me two or three different scenarios in which it did come up. And there was a window of opportunity. So recognizing that it it may be a rare opportunity, nevertheless, will we be ready to speak up when the time comes? And moreover, if someone that we know is currently in a crisis pregnancy situation, again, as the mother or the father or someone connected to them, and we know them, 
Will we speak up? Will we say something that can change a life? And in addition, will we do something? Will we say something? Will we do something to help, to promote a culture of life, to bring good news? All right, so number one, like Jesus, we first want to see the person and see the whole person. With the paralytic, Jesus saw beneath the surface. With the tax collectors, he saw the person, and he did not define Matthew or his friends by their sin. He saw the person. So we must never forget that in every conversation, in in every situation in which abortion is, is part of what's going on in the situation, we're always dealing with a person in front of us, not just an issue. So see the person even more than the issue. Don't see the issue first, see the person. Because, of course, if we forget to do this, we're actually committing the same error that the pro-choice side is is committing. They're forgetting and failing to see the unborn child as a person. Let's not make the same mistake, and let's remember that everyone we interact with and talk to on this issue is a person with a story, with a heart, and a mind, and a life. And Jesus wants to renew all of those things. Tomorrow we celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Here's a quote from him. Whom you would change, you must first love, and they must know that you love them. They must feel it. They must experience it. In your words and your deeds, must be genuine. So Jesus sees the person. He also sees the whole person, and he ministers both to the head and the heart, to the inner and the outer. The man was healed from his paralysis but he was also forgiven of his sins. So for us, as we're seeking to change minds, yes, we want to change minds. Ideas matter. They affect the course of lives. And ideas are changed by words. We seek to change minds, but as we do so, we're tending to the heart. And even both of those realities, the head and the heart, are inner realities, we also want to keep in mind how can we attend to the outer reality, which for a woman contemplating abortion or a couple contemplating abortion as a solution, how can we in some way meet or care for their practical needs? So that it's not just words, but it's words backed up by action. Now, on this point, I do want to dispel a lie that I think is of the enemy and and can encourage our, our paralysis, our inaction. And the lie is this. I think we oftentimes think, unless I can do everything for this woman or everything for this child, Unless I can do everything, my care is inauthentic. If I can't do everything, I shouldn't do, I should do nothing, or else I'm a hypocrite. That is a lie. Because the reality is, no one can do everything for someone else. It's not even supposed to work that way. You can never do everything that someone else needs, but in almost every situation, you can do something. You can't do everything, but in almost every situation, you can do something. So let's minister to the whole person, the head, the heart, the inner needs, but also their practical needs. Let us speak with words. Let us also act with our lives and open our lives to those who may need it. So with Jesus, we see the person. And like Jesus, we speak truth. Jesus did this both to the paralytic, to the Pharisees, and to the tax collectors. He's speaking truth. And again, I want us to walk away from today knowing that our words matter. Words are powerful. They have the power to change hearts and minds, and it is worth it 
to speak up even if not everybody's going to listen. In, in this story, we don't know who responded to Jesus necessarily, but I, I have to believe that others in that crowded house, maybe even some of the Pharisees, responded at his words, responded at his actions, and turned their hearts. We never know who it might affect, even if not everybody is going to listen to what we have to say or agree. And as our scripture from Proverbs says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. I also want to encourage us in this way, that with words, a little can go a long way. I don't think our goal needs to be out there crusading or trying to convince somebody in a single conversation and completely do a 180 for them. I, I don't think that needs to be our goal. I think we plant seeds with small, brief statements or by asking questions that get them to think more deeply about this issue and think what they really believe about it. Small, brief statements, like maybe you're in that coworker situation, you're with three or four friends in the break room, the topic does come up, and you just get the sense that the assumption is everybody's pro-life, and of course everybody's pro-life, or pro-choice, I should say. That's the assumption. It, for you to speak up and say a simple phrase such as, actually, I, I don't agree with that. Even just that little phrase could be an invitation to a deeper conversation. Or you might say, I think life is a gift, should be protected. Or even as stark and simple as, I think abortion is wrong. Could we have the courage to speak those simple phrases and just see how those words could change lives? Follow-up conversations. These coworkers, friends, extended family, tell me more about that. You're asking them questions. If this feels like a fearful thing or a scary thing to you because you are like my friend in a secular workplace or you're surrounded by people who maybe vehemently are opposed to this, I just want to encourage you, you are not alone. The church is with you. Moreover, the Lord is with you. And as you speak, likely I would guess there are even others in your environment who also believe the same thing. But they're just waiting for someone to speak up and give them the courage to say, actually, I, I think abortion is wrong too. So one of the scenarios that my friend mentioned earlier is he had a coworker who in her second and third trimester consistently and intentionally referred to her baby as the fetus and would not call it he or, or her, but it. Call the baby uh, it to dehumanize. And every time she did this, the response from the other coworkers was applause and affirmation. It's so good that you're doing that to her. In this situation, what would it be like if then afterwards, at a later time, a simple question like, hey, I've noticed that you're referring to your, your baby as a fetus and as, as it, and I'm just curious uh, what, what your reason is for that. What does calling your baby a fetus mean to you? It's a, it's a small little challenge, but really it's an open invitation to, I want to understand what you are thinking. I want to understand what you believe. And as we grow in our understanding of where somebody is at, then it helps us have a conversation and potentially change minds. Uh, Stephanie Gray is a master of this. She wrote a book called Love Unleashes Life. I highly recommend it. She's actually been here a couple of times. Uh, she's one of our luminaries, one of our guiding lights on how to speak the truth about 
uh, abortion and promoting a culture of life, but to do it, not just what she's saying, but it's how she says it. And she really focuses on the questions. She says, asking questions is such a great tool. And one of her favorite questions to start a conversation is just very simply, again, this, is, this can be simple. What do you believe about abortion? Having no idea where the conversation is going to go for that, from there, but having the courage to just, in the moment, if it seems right, ask the question, well, what do you believe about abortion? And be prepared, of course, to share what you believe about abortion. I also called this week um, our partners at Caring Network. It's a crisis pregnancy organization. They, they counsel women and, and couples who are contemplating abortion. They also care for those who've had abortions. And uh, my friends there, I used to actually work there a few years ago, but uh, I, I called to say, just remind me, what are some of the things that you experience in the counseling room or things that you hear? And what struck me, among many things, uh, that uh, Lindsay, my friend, reminded me, she said, you know, a lot of women come in here Many of them are actually Christians. They believe in, in God. They even believe that abortion is wrong, but they have no one in their life telling them, you can do this. No one encouraging them or no one really challenging their assumptions. She, she even said, we've had women tell us that pastors have said, you can have an abortion. God will forgive you afterwards. She also said that as they have conversations and, and they get these women or these couples to think about the issue more deeply, she's surprised at the number of times she hears them say, I've never really thought about it before. I've just never really thought about it. That, we don't think about it that way, because we, we give a whole Sunday to this every year, and we assume that everybody else is thinking about this as deeply as we are. That may not be the case. There are many people who simply have never heard the pro-life point of view, and you could be the one in a simple way to share it and change lives. So on this, just a refresher, crash course on what is the pro-life view. Well, it, it, it's actually pretty simple. You can boil it down to one linchpin idea, and it's this, that the unborn child is fully a human person just like you and me from the moment of conception. All right, so again, the unborn child is fully a human person just like you and me beginning from conception. That's the linchpin idea. If we can help people understand that, then like a domino, all the other flaws in, in the pro-choice and the supporting abortion argument, that they, they fall. Because in order to support abortion, you have to draw a line after conception. At some point, you have to draw a line, and it's arbitrary, where life does begin, or you have to draw arbitrary characteristics of what makes somebody fully human. And so if you can get them to understand from the beginning of fertilization, that's a full human being, and they have rights then just like you and I would, then you're, you're on the way to helping change somebody's mind. And a good way to do this is just keep pressing in and asking questions. Well, why do you believe life begins there? Why do you believe those are the criteria for someone to be a full human being? And as you press in, you might help them all on their own discover the flaw in their thinking because the key flaw in this thinking is that if life begins later than conception or if there are any other criteria for being a human person than simply being a human person, then every single one of us is at risk. Then there's no protection outside of the womb either. That logic, if you extend it, puts everybody at risk, 
And, and that's the main flaw in the pro-choice supporting abortion argument. So again, the, the linchpin, unborn child is fully human, just like you and me, from the moment of conception. Now, Stephanie Gray, in her book, Love Unleashes Life, and also Randy Alcorn has a book entitled Why Pro-Life. They can go into more detail about um, what are some of the counter-arguments or the common objections and, and how do you answer those. And that's really helpful. I've been helped to look at those resources. But I want to say to you, from the starting point that you have right now, you have everything you need. You can do this. You can have these conversations. Believe that you have good news to give because you do. All right, so we see the person. We speak truth. And then as we're having these conversations and we're, we're in these scenarios, it, it may be that perhaps you're doing all of this and you get to the point where it's clear to you that for this person, this is personal. Then you shift gears and you realize, okay, they've been impacted in the past. They've had an abortion or they've encouraged someone to. Or perhaps right now, even in this moment, this is a woman considering abortion as a solution, or this is a man encouraging a woman to have an abortion as a solution. And in these moments where you realize this is real for this person because of their life story or because of what they're doing right now, at that moment, more than ever, we need to remember, perhaps most of important of all, what Jesus does is he gives hope. He sees the person, he speaks truth, but third, he gives hope. And we want to be like him in this very much. So Jesus brought the grace of forgiveness both to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, and to the tax collectors. By befriending them, he's showing them and calling them to follow him. He's showing them everything that you've done in the past. It is forgiven. And by his friendship, he discipled them into a new life filled with hope for the future. Your life from here forward can look different. What a hopeful message. Even look at the, the first two words Jesus gives to the paralytic. Look again. What does he say? Take heart. How about that phrase for words that can change lives? Tell somebody, take heart. Do not be afraid. You're going to get through this. You can do this, and you're going to have help. Wow, that can change lives. It may be that uh, as you, you press in and you find out this is a personal thing for the person you're talking to, it's affected them in, in the past, sometimes we underestimate the power of the message of forgiveness. Again, we're, we're in the church where we hear about forgiveness every week. We're reading our Bibles. We know that forgiveness is a part of our lives. People who are not in church and not reading their Bibles, they know deep down inside that they need forgiveness, but no one is telling them that it's there for them. This most basic tenet of the gospel, so important. And when you get a sense that somebody has regret or sorrow or sadness over something they've done, they're carrying a burden that is really heavy to them, again, your words, small few words can go a long way. You tell them this. Did you know that Jesus can forgive you for the wrong things you've done? That, just that, that would change a life. Do you know Jesus can forgive you for the wrong things you've done? Wow. 
They don't need, at that point, a long, convoluted speech about divine providence and predestination and original sin. Okay? If you have seminary training, forget it. Just tell them, Jesus can forgive you for the wrong things you've done. That's the heart of the gospel. And oh, people need to hear that. Stephanie Gray also gives this helpful uh, pattern of things to do when it's not a past issue, but it's a present reality. You're talking to somebody who's pregnant or is potentially encouraging a pregnant woman to have an abortion. And first, she says, you want to understand. So ask questions. Understand their circumstance. That both elicits compassion. That, that would be really hard. I, I agree. Where, where you are right now, that would be a challenge. It elicits compassion. It also gives you data. Okay, I know where they're coming from. I know why they're considering abortion as a solution, so now I know how I can encourage them to think that abortion will not be a solution for this particular circumstance. So you start by understanding where they're at. Next, support. I'm here for you. I'll take you to Caring Network. I'll walk with you in this. I'll do whatever I need to support you. I'm here for you. So you understand, then you support. But the next, she's really clear. You've got to inform. You've got to tell that woman or that man the truth about abortion, what it does, you got to tell them the truth about who is in the womb. It's a fully human baby. And to take that life is to kill a child. And fourth, she says, after you understand their circumstances, support them, inform them. Finally, you don't budge. Stay firm. With gentleness and care and love all the way through, I have utter confidence that you will do that. But don't budge. Don't back down. Don't compromise. Other words of hope that you could give to someone in this situation, simple phrases that could change lives, things like, you can do this. Or telling them, children are a gift. Being a father or a mother is one of the most important and wonderful things you could ever do. You have a great opportunity before you. And acknowledge the reality, yes, it, it will be hard and it'll take everything you've got, but you've got it. And you will have help along the way. And to remind them of something that we all instinctively know, that the hard things are not always bad. Hard does not always equal bad, and easy does not always equal good. And in fact, if you press them on it, you'll probably help them realize that, oh yeah, the things I value most and the people I respect the most are those who've sacrificed and worked hard and done hard things, that's what, I, that's what all of us aspire to. And you're just helping them see you have an opportunity to do that now. It will be hard, but it will be worth it in the end. You're speaking hope, encouragement. And if at the end of the day they're, they're still not able to imagine raising this child, we always hold out the option for adoption. And say that is a beautiful gift you can give to another family and to your child. Now, along with these words of hope, we do want to accompany them with action. There are many actions that can be taken. And so one thing is just to ask, is the Lord putting anything on my heart? Is there one little thing against dispelling the lie that it's got to be all or nothing to say, in this moment for this person, is there some practical thing that I can do to show the love of Jesus to help them? But also, I would say, point them to resources. 
And if you don't know all the resources, let me give you one so it's really easy to remember. I mentioned it earlier, the Caring Network of, of Illinois, the Caring Network of DuPage County. There are partners in ministry. They are experts at this. They know all the other resources that are available. They're used to having these conversations and counseling women in a loving, gentle, but truthful way. They also have ultrasound capabilities, which they've said that's a game changer. Oftentimes when women can see the baby, it builds their bond and connection to that child. They also have post-abortive care so that those who are dealing with regret, shame, sadness, whatever, many have found their lives transformed. So that one resource and taking your friend to Caring Network, that can be a game changer. That can be a life changer. Now as we conclude here, I, I want to be really clear that the goal of this sermon, the goal of doing Sanctity Life Sunday every year is not that we would walk away saying, oh, I'm not doing enough for this issue. One more thing that I'm failing at. But the goal is this, and it's a slight difference, but I think it makes a big difference. The goal is for all of us together to come to this place where we're saying to the Lord, okay, I'm, I'm open. I'm open to you. I know that you want to renew hearts and minds and entire lives, and I want you to use my prayers. Yes, we begin with prayer. I want you to use my prayers. I want you to use my words. And I want you to use my actions to promote the culture of life and to bring good news and the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm open. That's what I'm praying for. I'm, I'm praying for that for myself. Lord, I, I'm open for more. I'm open to pray more. I'm open to say more. I'm open to doing more. You lead the way, and I'll follow. So let's take that similar posture of saying, all guilt trip and shame and condemnation aside, we're in this place of openness. Okay, Lord, in our prayers, our words and deeds, use us. We're open to you. Now we're going to have a daughter of resurrection, Laura Lambie, come and share her story. Um, it is a story that... Um, is about what wasn't there for her. She's going to share a very personal and, uh, and deep experience that she had regarding abortion. The point of this, again, is not to make us feel any kind of vicarious guilt, but instead to say, wow, what would it have meant for Laura to hear a, a voice championing her, to have one person standing alongside her? So let's welcome Laura on up to share her story. Twenty-one years ago, I was 19 years old and living a wild lifestyle. Religion and church were not a part of my life. I didn't see any problems with having premarital relations with my boyfriend. I was on birth control, but I had a medical condition that made it ineffective. One day, I started bleeding uncontrollably, and my mom rushed me to the ER. Everyone assumed that I was having a miscarriage but they did a pregnancy test and it was negative. During a follow-up ultrasound, the medical tech said that she was measuring the size of my fetus. I said, what? Come again? She said, you're pregnant. I told her this wasn't possible. She showed me the monitor so I could see my baby. It sunk in. I was pregnant. 
happiness rushed through my body. I smiled from ear to ear. I was surprised by my happiness. You see, I wasn't the type of person that dreamt of having kids. So I got home and I blurted out in excitement, I'm pregnant. Um, my, instead of my boyfriend and my mom sharing in excitement, I was bombarded with reasons why I couldn't keep my child. And they told me if I decided to keep my child that I would be, do it on my own. Doubt and fear took over. I was convinced that I was not equipped to care for a child and give it a good life. That left me with two options, adoption or abortion. I knew if I carried the child to term, I would not be able to go through with an abortion, or excuse me, an adoption. So I decided to do an abortion. In my mind, I was saving the child from the horrible life that I was convinced that I would provide. I made the appointment, and after, and after the procedure, I knew instantly I had made the wrong decision. When I got home, I was an emotional wreck. Thankfully, my job gave me a month off. Those four weeks consisted of tears, heartache, and self-hatred. I couldn't help but think of all of the things that I would miss, like first steps and birthdays. When I went back to work, I tried to numb the pain by overworking and putting on a happy facade, but I carried the pain within me. Now, sadly, this would be my only chance to have a child. Three and a half years later, after my abortion, due to the medical condition I mentioned earlier, I had to have a hysterectomy. So this meant I would never be able to give birth to children of my own. This testimony does not have a happy ending, but there is hope. Two years ago, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and reaffirmed my baptismal vows in this church. I also confessed my sins, including my past abortion, to God and to others here. During the confession, I realized that I was also asking permission to forgive myself. I accepted Christ's forgiveness, and I was able to let go of my guilt and self-punishment. I found peace and healing. I am now inspired to help others who feel alone in a crisis pregnancy. It is so important to save the life of the child in creation, but there's also another child that needs saving, the mother. We need to show God's love to the mothers. We need to bring them home to the church, to God, through his son, Jesus Christ, where there's hope, love, forgiveness, and strength. I am thankful that Jesus saved me and brought me into his church. I believe that by saving the mother, you will save the child. No one was there for me during my unexpected pregnancy and I made a horrible and life-changing decision. I plead today that you join me in a mission to put an end to testimonies like the one I shared with you today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.